our culture has the tendency to get obsessed with things. And one of the things that our culture in general, I think, is really hooked on right now is the idea of renovations and makeovers. I mean, there's all these shows out there, you know, like Extreme Makeover, all this stuff, that uh, all these shows about renovating homes, and, and magazine after magazine, article after article, show after show about renovations. And these people that, that take these homes that were once in complete shambles and, and suddenly they turn them into the owner's dreams. And all along we are sitting there captivated by what's transpiring. It's like, oh, I, I can't wait to see what they use next. Are they going to use subway tiles? Or, or what, what's it going to be this time? You know, we sit, we watch, we watch the, the progress and we see the problems all along because there's always a problem where more money is needed, Right. You see the problems along the way, and you are eagerly anticipating the big reveal. And what everybody wants to see at the end is the before and the after. We want to see the before and the after pictures, because that's what's... Oh, the transformation is absolutely incredible. Uh, my wife and I enjoy watching a few of these, and, and every once in a while we'll sit down, we'll, we'll just watch for a few minutes, and okay, maybe a little longer than that, but we'll watch some of these shows. And In fact, uh, last year, our family and some friends, we had the opportunity, and we, we took a day trip a few hours away to visit the <clears throat> hometown of one of these shows. And uh, we, we got to just go through the town, see their shops, and visit the stores, and, and uh, eat some of the local food. We walked through the neighborhood, saw a lot of the homes, and it was just really exciting to, to be there, to see the transformation. Remember the before and after pictures? And, but it was really exciting. But, you know, I, I think the reality is it's really easy for us as people to get really excited over new things, a new house, a, a new hairdo, uh, you know, a, a new wardrobe, a new Apple device. Who doesn't get excited about that? You know, we just came through Christmas. Our kids getting excited over new toys. And while none of those things are wrong, none of them in and of themselves are wrong, I, I think in the grand scheme of things, they're really quite insignificant, aren't they? There are much deeper, more significant changes. Maybe we could say more significant renovations that we need to get excited about. And honestly, that we ought to be actively pursuing. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, he's talking quite directly of the renovation that all believers are experiencing. And he says this in verse 17 of chapter 5. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know, there was a complete renovation that took place, a total makeover from who we were before Christ to who we are in Christ. And unfortunately, rather than living like the new man we are, all too often you and I have the tendency to hold on to the old things. Those things that we once were. In fact, Warren Wiersbe, speaking on this topic of putting off the old man and putting on the new, he said this. He said, we need to take off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. Unfortunately, I think the reality is, myself included, we often, we often wear the grave clothes. We, we display that which is, not truly a represent, which is not truly representative of the new man that we are in Christ rather who we were. 
So today we're going to look together in Ephesians chapter 4, if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And, and as you're turning, keep this statement in mind tonight. New creatures, the new man in Christ that we are, new creatures in Christ are to display the righteousness and holiness of God. We are to display the righteousness and holiness of God. And if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us has some room to grow as a Christian, right? Every one of us has some renovations we need to make as we continue to strive to be Christ-like. And the book of Ephesians is one of those great books that we have that God has given us that helps us know what changes we need to make. When you, when you look at the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians is really the doctrinal section of this book. It's the doctrinal section of this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. He's teaching them of the grace that they have received. In fact, in the first three chapters alone, we find Paul mentioning the word grace nine times. We find it in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 7, and the verse probably many of us are familiar with, chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace are ye saved through faith. What Paul is doing is in this epistle, this letter to the church, to these believers, he's establishing the fact that we are the recipients of the grace of God. If we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, we stand and have received the grace of God the Father. And then when we get to chapter 4, there's a transition from the doctrinal section of the book to, to the practical. Okay, here, here's, here's who we are. We're, we're, we're recipients of God's grace. Okay, so chapter 4, now what? Here, here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. Here, here's where the changes that we need to apply. Here's what we need to be doing. And God's word is telling us that there's something that, as a result of being a recipient of his grace, there's something that we should be doing. Now, it's important that we understand that it is a due, it is not a due for the grace, it is a due because of the grace we've already received. Paul's saying that this isn't just information we need to know. We don't just need to, to, to recognize and acknowledge that we've received the grace of God, but there's some action that we should be doing, should, should, should be a part of, some changes that should be taking place. In other words, it's the idea of not just being hearers of the word, but doers. And this is why Paul uses the words therefore and wherefore eight times in the second half of this book. In fact, we find it in chapter four, verse number one, the very beginning, I therefore, that transitionary statement, okay, here's, here's, here's what we know, therefore, this is what we need to do. Chapter four, verse 17, he says it again, this I say, therefore, Walk not as a Gentiles. Chapter 4, verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lines. Chapter 5, verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God. And he does this four more times in chapter 5. He's basically saying, here is what Christ has done for you. Now in light of this, here's what we need to do for Christ. So let's ask the question. We've been recipients of grace. What is it we should be doing? How should we change? What should I as a Christian look like? And we find the answer to this in chapter 4. And beginning in verse number 17, we're going to begin reading in verse 17. And, and all the way down through the end of verse number 32, it is one paragraph. It's one full thought that the Apostle Paul is, is presenting to these believers. And he's reminding the church at Ephesus of the life that they once lived and the need for a clean break from it. 
And he describes the unsaved world, draws the distinction between the world and who we are in Christ. So look with me in chapter 4, beginning of verse number 17. Uh, follow along as I read down through verse number 24. He says, this I say therefore. Again, okay, here, here's, here's some work. There's something we need to do. And testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Vanity being, being the idea of uselessness, uh, without purpose. And, and then he says, in the vanity of their mind, they're having their understanding darkened. They're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blind, blindness of their heart. And they're blinded by Satan. And then in verse number 20, excuse me, verse 19, who being past feeling, or it's past feeling, it's the idea of callous, have given themselves under lasciviousness, all kind of essential immorality, to work all uncleanness, as, as immorality in general, general, with all greediness. It is their goal in life, it's their purpose, it's what they're pursuing. And then Paul transitions here. And he says, this is the world, church, but ye have not so learned Christ. That's not what, that's not who Christ is. And in verse 21, he says, If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation. The old man. Put off that which was described in 17, 18, and 19. The, the, that which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And instead, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Does it remind you of Romans chapter 12, verse 20? That be, be, be not conformed to this world. Don't be like the, the Gentiles, but be transformed how by the renewing of your mind and then in verse number uh, 24 and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness so we're being told that there should be a distinct difference in these verses between us and the unsaved world a noticeable difference distinct difference in fact, a new man, a new creature in Christ, but we should, as, as that, we should be representative. We should be reflecting what verse 24 says, the righteousness and the true holiness of Christ. So what does that look like? What renovations, what changes do I need to make to rightly reflect the new man that I am in Christ? To rightly reflect the righteousness and holiness of God. Understand the new man rightly reflecting the righteousness and holiness of Christ is one who, number one, who speaks honestly. This is what we're to be known as, people that speak honestly. Look at verse number 25. Wherefore, again, here's the practical, where the rubber meets the road, this is what needs to change. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. The word for lying here is, is falsehood in all forms. It, it, and what scripture is saying is it needs to be put away. It should not be a part of who we are. Why? Because dishonesty misrepresents Christ. Dishonesty misrepresents Christ. Unfortunately, the truth is lying has become a, a way of life for, for many believers. From hiding the truth to exaggerating the facts to, to bold-faced lies... Any breach of truthfulness is not representative of who we are in Christ. It does not accurately reflect who Jesus Christ is. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, 
Later in the same chapter in verse number 17, Jesus, speaking of the comfort that's going to come, he refers to the Holy Spirit and he calls him the spirit of truth. That's who's dwelling in us. Back in our text, Ephesians chapter 4, if you look at verse number 20, but ye have so, not so learned, if so be, verse 21, that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. The, the verb used there, the truth is, has the sense of being equal with. What scripture is saying is that Jesus is truth and truth is Jesus. And if we are indeed Christians, we're indeed representatives of Christ, should not we be characterized by truth? Known for being honest. See, when we're dishonest, when we lie, it's not Christ that we're representing. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees in John 8, 44, he said, ye are, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Think of it like this. God is truth, but lies are the language of Satan. To put it as John Phillips did, he said, quote, lies are the evil one's common currency of speech. So when we ask the question, are you accurately representing Christ through a life of honesty? Dishonesty doesn't just misrepresent Christ, but it also, understand this, it hurts and hinders the work of the body of Christ. Back in our text in verse number 25, wherefore putting loyal lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. We're all to speak truth to our neighbors and our neighbors are defined here in the context of this passage to those that are in the body of Christ, members one of another. This doesn't exclude all men, but in the context Paul seems to be indicating there's a problem with dishonesty within the body of Christ. Was not lying the first sin that God dealt with within the church? Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Now here in, in, in Ephesians 4 verse 25, Paul is, is quoting from an Old Testament prophet. And basically what we're finding out is, is sudden, this isn't suddenly a new problem uh, in, in the church. It's been a problem for, for men of all time. And, and, he, and he, when he says in verse 25, speak every man truth with his neighbor, he's quoting from Zechariah 8.16 where Zechariah said... These are the things that you shall do. This is what you need to be doing, believer. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Why? Because dishonesty hurts the church. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. As members of the body of Christ, as members one of another, we affect each other. And apart from the truth, we cannot edify, we cannot build up each other in the work that God has called us to do. So the new man, rightly reflecting the righteousness and holiness of Christ, is one who speaks honestly. Secondly, he's one who controls his anger. Look at verse 26. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. See, what we're seeing in this passage is that anger is not always a wrong emotion. And in fact, Psalm 97 verse 10 says, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. 
Now, the Bible often speaks to the anger of the Lord being kindled. And in Matthew, uh, the anger of the Lord is part of his judgment against sin when he cleansed the temple. But what makes anger wrong, what makes anger wrong is when it becomes directed at the person and not the problem. Uncontrolled anger, understand this, destroys relationships. Anger is so, why so many homes, marriages, families are in turmoil. Our anger has been uncontrolled. It's been directed at the person and not at the problem. And it's, it's truly difficult for us to practice truly holy anger or what, what we could refer to as righteous indignation. Why? Because our emotions are tainted by sin and we're often controlled by our emotions. But when we direct our anger at the problem and not the person, we, we begin to get an advantage. What is that advantage? It's the ability to listen. James 1.19 said, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. There was someone that once tried to defend their bad temper by saying, well, listen, all I do is I explode and then it's all over with. It's done. No, 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 it's not ongoing after that. I don't hold it in. And their friend rightly responded, yeah, but it's just like a shotgun. Look at the damage that it has done. Hence Solomon said in Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Let's ask the Lord to help us control our anger. Let's ask the Lord to help us make the needed repairing in those broken relationships that may be there. You may say, but Jason, too much damage has been done. It's irreparable. <clears throat> and I remind you of this. If he can raise the dead, he can restore your relationship. Uncontrolled anger destroys relationships. And unresolved anger gives Satan a foothold in your life. Look back in our text, again in verse 26. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. It's essential that we settle our sinful anger quickly. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 25, he said, agree with thine adversary quickly. What he's saying was resolve the problem before it becomes a bigger one. When we allow our anger to linger unresolved, we're giving place to the devil. The word place means to give opportunity or to give space to perform. To give space to function. It's the Holy Spirit that we want working within us. It's the Holy Spirit we want controlling us, not the open door for Satan to influence our lives. You know, really, it's in the heart that this all takes place. And Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So let's proactively guard our hearts, and therefore our lives, from the effects of anger by asking the Lord to help us control it and to help us resolve it. So the new man, rightly reflecting the righteousness and holiness of Christ, is one who speaks honestly, is one who controls his anger, and thirdly, it's one who gives generously. It's the one who gives generously. Look at verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more. Let him that stole steal no more. So the exhortation is, okay, church, stop stealing. This is what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus. Stop stealing. That's who you were before Christ. But the new man is not that. One of the characteristics of the old man is, is, is stealing. It's not representative of who we are in Christ. 
You know, the word for steal in this passage is not simply a reference to someone who's a, a professional crook. But really it covers, and catch this word, it covers every kind of misappropriation. When we take that which doesn't belong to us, when we misuse our time on the clock, when we keep that back, that which belongs to God. It's stealing. And for the new man in Christ, we're told, that's not who we should be. That's the old man. This has to stop. So the Bible's saying, don't let stealing be characteristic of who you are. Rather, get working. Quite the, quite the distinctions being drawn. Instead of taking what isn't yours, start working. Start working. Look at verse 28 again. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. The word labor means to toil or to work hard. Really, it's, it's, it's carrying the idea of to work to the point of exhaustion. We are, we are working hard. And we as Christians, as new creatures in Christ, we ought to be characterized as hard workers. We ought to be the ones out there that, that when the world looks at us, they say, boy, they're working hard. What to be the hardest worker in our place? The very next word that comes after labor, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, but rather let him labor, working with his hands. It's two different Greek words that are used there. And the word for working uh, means to, to work together and to serve for a purpose. To serve, to, to work either mentally or, or physically for a purpose. And you and I, as the body of Christ, we have a purpose to work together. That it is, we work together to, to know him and to make him known. That is our purpose as the body of Christ. The question is, are we doing it? Are we working together for the same purpose? The very next phrase in this verse tells us, you know, we work for, for another purpose, and that is to give. To give. Look, look at the end of verse number 28. We work, why? That he may have to give to him that needeth. Our work is for a much greater purpose than our own needs. We work in order to help others. There's a great contrast in this verse, isn't there? We work to give rather than to get. We work to give rather than to take. The new man is one who works to give. He's a generous giver to others. He's a generous giver to the cause of Christ. And we're not talking just financially, but we're talking about our time, our resources, that which God has entrusted with us, we are to be using, working together for his purposes, for his glory. And when we fail to work, when we fail to work hard, we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting others. It's been said that a lazy Christian robs himself, others, and God. And as Christians, we should be known as hard workers and generous givers. It ought to be who we are in Christ as the new man. The new man rightly reflecting the righteousness and holiness of Christ is one who speaks honestly, controls his anger, and gives generously. And fourthly, he's one who edifies others. He's one who edifies others. Look at verse 29. 
Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace, there's our word again, grace unto the hearers. Do you know that the mouth and the heart are connected? The mouth and the heart are connected. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And when you change the heart, you change the speech. In our text, there's a change that is expected when the old man is, is put away and the new man is put on. Back in, in 29, let no corrupt communication. The word corrupt has the sense of, uh, of that which is damaging or destructive. In a sense, it's useless. It so, serves no purpose in the edification of the body of Christ. And the word communication, let no corrupt communication. This, this, is, this is the word logos, the same word that Dr. Amsbaugh spoke about and, and explained to us a little bit on Sunday night. And again, it speaks of a message most often spoken in word. And in our text, that's specifically what it's referring to. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But have you ever stopped back and listened to yourself talking to somebody and you said, man, I sound harsh? I have. I have, and I suppose that probably all of us have at some point. But corrupt communication can come through more than just our spoken words. You've heard the phrase, actions speak louder than words. You know, it can be our body language. Body language says a lot. It can be our actions. Today, let's be real for a moment, it can be our social media posts. You see, the question we must ask each other is not whether or not in and of itself our communication is, is bad, it's immoral, or our messaging is bad, because our words don't have to be dirty to be worthless. Instead, the question we should be asking ourselves about our communication is whether it's edifying the body of Christ, whether it's accurately representing who we are in Christ. And if the answer to that question is no, then the simple truth is that that is corrupt communication. It does not reflect the righteousness and holiness of God. And God says, put it away. Put it away. You see, your very words can be a dispensary of grace or a destroyer of relationships. And as new creatures in Christ, our communication should be edifying. We're told here in this verse, it should be edifying rather than damaging, specifically to the body of Christ in our passage, but also to people in general. Then in verse number 30, tells us that lying, anger, stealing, corrupt speech, all of these things that we're being told to put away, they grieve the Holy Spirit. They bring sorrow to the person of the Holy Spirit that is indwelling us meaning they're not indicative of one who is walking or one who is controlled by the Spirit. So remember, the new man rightly reflecting the righteousness and holiness of Christ is one who speaks honestly. It's one who controls his anger. It's one who gives generously. It's one who edifies others. And number five, it's, it's one who shows grace. Look with me in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor 
and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And instead, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And to be a dispensary of grace, verse 31 is telling us there are some things that we need to let go of. We need to let go of bitterness. Both literally and figuratively, bitterness is like a poison. Picture an acid eating away at something solid and you're getting the idea of what it can do to your heart. It's been said that bitterness is the poison we drink hoping that others will die. It is the spite that harbors resentment and keeps a score of wrongs. And understand that bitterness is destroying you and those around you when we harbor it. Hebrews 12, 15 says this, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. It's hurting many people. And God says, put it away. Put it away. It says, put away bitterness, put away wrath. That, that's that, that heavy breathing, passionate anger. And, and when you let this type of anger go unresolved, you're allowing that anger to simmer in your heart until it eventually boils over in other ways and in other areas and in other aspects and in other relationships of your life. And God says, put it away. Put away bitterness, put away wrath, put away anger. That's that intense anger that doesn't subside. It's an anger that, that we think that by harboring it, we're punishing the other party. And it's that anger that blows up. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, our anger is usually self-centered. Our feelings were hurt, our rights were violated, our efforts were unrecognized. And God says, put it away. It's not characteristic of me and who you are as a new creature in Christ. To put away clamor. That's that, that's, that's that shouting, that understandable shout. It's, it's yelling at one another. And we think that the louder we get, the more serious that they're going to realize we're being and the more clearly that my point is made. But the reality of this is this. Yelling never works. Clamor never works. In fact, it usually ends up providing an opportunity for the same response or another type of anger from the recipient. God says, put it away. Put away evil speaking. It's from the same word that we translate the word blaspheme. It's to speak evil of someone, to slander them. It is a speech that is intended to injure. And it's often found in the form of gossip. And God says, put it away. Then he says, and put away malice. Put away malice. That's, that's, that's evil. It's, it's depravity of all kinds. It's the act of perverting the virtuous and moral principles for the purpose of achieving evil ends. It's when your anger simply becomes meanness. It's that passive acceptance of sin in your life. It's the unresolved anger in any form. And God says, put it away. That's not who the new man is. And instead... Give grace. Give grace. Look back in our, our text, verse 32. Instead of all these, put away the bitterness, the wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, malice, and instead be ye kind one to another. 
Kind is the idea of busying yourself to help others, to, to benefit others. In other words, kindness isn't just the absence of meanness. It's the presence of useful goodness. So when we have the tendency so often, as I have been guilty with saying, you know what, Um, so I'm going to be kind to them by not going over there and talking to them right now. Because otherwise I'm going to give them what I really want to say, a piece of my mind. So I'm just going to ignore them. I'm going to sit over here. I'm going to pass by them on the opposite end of the hall because I'm trying to be kind. That's not kindness. Kindness isn't just the absence of meanness. It's the presence of useful goodness. And God says, this is who we are. This is who we ought to be. Be kind one to another. Again, members one of another. The body of Christ, we ought to be getting along. Every one of us. Kind, be tenderhearted. It's the idea of compassionate, sympathetic. Means you keep a soft heart toward others, even toward those that have hurt you. And how that's accomplished is by forgiving one another. By forgiving one another. Perhaps you've heard the story, but Corey Ten Boom is one of, perhaps one of the most famous best-known prisoners of a Nazi, Nazi concentration camp. She was a Dutch Christian that helped hide Jews from the Nazis, and she, her father, and sister were imprisoned. And during that time, both her, uh, both her father and her sister died from the brutal treatment that they received. And years after the war had ended, years after she had survived and gotten out of the prison camps, uh, Corey was speaking in a church about love and forgiveness. And afterward, a man came to her uh, and and approached her, and and immediately as she saw him coming, she recoiled and felt a coldness in her heart. He'd been one of the guards at the Ravensburg camp that she was at. He walked up to her, he shook her hand, and, and said, a fine message that was, and oh, how good it is to know that our sins are at the bottom of the sea. She stood there frozen, staring at him. And he said, you mentioned Ravensbrook. I was a guard there. But since then, I've become a Christian. I know what God has forgiven. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, he said. But I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. He said, Fraulein, will you forgive me? Corey later described that moment. And she said this, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, and I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. She told how she reached out her hand to shake his, and the moment their hands embraced, She said, the love of God filled my heart for him. I love the word forgive. I've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. By Christ. By loved ones. You know, when we look at the word forgive, it's the word charizomai. It's not found in that form very often in Scripture. 
And in here in verse number 32, both times we see the words forgiving and forgiven. It's the exact same form, charizomai. We, say, we find that same form, one of the other few times it's used in the scripture, we find it also used in Acts chapter 3, verse number 14. And the idea of forgiven is, is, is that um, in verse 14 of chapter 3 of Acts, listen, it says, be, but, be, excuse me, but ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. The word for granted is charizomai. The idea of this verse is, is talking about Barabbas being granted, Barabbas being pardoned, Barabbas being set free. Keep that in mind when we look at our text in verse 32 again, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, setting free one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath set you free. You see, when, we, when you forgive, you set two people free. And you realize that one of them is you. You're set free from the bitterness and the anger that's in your heart. And we could say this. We could say that forgiveness is the antidote to the poison of bitterness. What God is telling us is that this new you in Christ is the one that is kind, that is compassionate, that is forgiving. Why? Because we are recipients of the kindness, the compassion, and the forgiveness of God. So remember this, new creatures in Christ are to display the righteousness and holiness of God. And the new man rightly reflecting that righteousness, the new man that is rightly reflecting that holiness is one who speaks honestly, who controls his anger, who gives generously, who edifies others and shows grace. Does this describe you? You know, the truth is we could all use a little bit of help. We could all use some growth. We could all use some, can we say the word, renovation in these areas and in our hearts. So I ask you today, ask God to help you become more like him that we, as the body of Christ, may more accurately reflect his righteousness and his true holiness.